You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. This is the movement of Holy Week, Good Friday and Easter. God making beautiful things out of destruction, out of chaos, out of the dust. And What posture do we have to take to participate in that? As I mentioned earlier, we're in the final sermon in our Lent series, the the sermon on Palm Sunday, beginning of Holy Week. We've heard a number of sermons from from George on presence, on authenticity, on on reconciliation, on hospitality. We heard from Renee Sundberg preaching on mercy. And and actually, until Renee preached, I didn't realize all preachers are supposed to use airplane stories. Um, So I decided I better get one in. Uh, Mine isn't anywhere near as dramatic as Renee's, I was heading out to the East Coast at one point to visit my sister. This was probably about 15 years ago, and um, or quite a while ago. And I sat next to a person who was around my same age. We were both in our 20s. It was more than 15 years ago. And <laughs> tick, 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 tick. But he was going to be leaving then from Dulles to go on to Calcutta. He was joining up uh, with Mother Teresa. This is when she was still alive and to join in the work of the Sisters of Charity. It was a really interesting conversation with him, and and what he brought up, actually, is he was not a person of faith. Actually, had no interest in the church. But he was very interested in the work that the Sisters of Charity were doing among the dying in Calcutta. And the reason he brought it up, I remember this, I didn't bring it up. He brought it up to make the comment that it it was intriguing to him that they welcomed him to join their work when he was a non-believer. Now, a couple things struck me about this. This, by the way, is an unfinished story. I'm not going to come around at the end of the sermon and tell you uh, he sent me an email later to say he converted because, first of all, I wasn't using email at that point. And I don't know what happened. But two things happened to me. The first thing was I was so grateful for the come-and-see posture that the Sisters of Charity had taken toward this young adult. I don't know why I assumed that there would be some requirement that a person be Catholic or at least a professing believer before they join the Sisters of Charity in Jesus' mission in the world. But seeing his excitement and his curiosity, I was won over to the hospitality of the Sisters of Charity, not only a hospitality toward those who are dying, but also a hospitality to the non-believer who desired to join them in their mission. And the second thing that happened for me is I saw for myself how this invitation to to come and to serve could become the invitation to faith. We, I don't have to tell you, we live in a very cynical time uh, towards religion. But we also live in the corner of the U.S. in particular where philanthropy, where uh, service to others is, is a common ground that many people agree upon. And it had just never hit me so hard the way that mutual service can lead to a discovery of mutual faith. I had always assumed that first you had to have mutual faith, and then you could go into mutual service. But I learned that an authentic presence of the Sisters of Charity who extended mercy in Calcutta also lived and announced the good news of God's grace, and they were inviting this uh, fellow passenger on that airplane to experience this. So here is a... Question alongside that, however, and alongside that conviction that I've been wrestling with for many weeks ever since uh, I realized this would be the passage or the topic I was preaching on. 
The question that keeps going through my head then is, all right, if we can agree, and I do believe, that we can join in a common service to the world of God's mission, right alongside people who don't, who don't, who don't profess the same faith as we do, then what is distinct about Christian service? And I don't ask this question to denigrate or critique or set aside somehow service done by people who are not believers as if it's a lesser service. That's not why I'm asking. The reason I'm asking is it seems to me that those of us who profess faith in Jesus Christ and who go out to serve in obedience to that faith, there ought to be something we bring that is unique, something that is distinct because Jesus Christ is distinct. And if we don't bring it, it doesn't come to the table. And shame on us. What do we bring to the mutual service of Jesus' mission in the world that then also brings the unique expression of faith in Jesus Christ who makes beautiful things out of dust? That's the question I want to look at today. And I want to look at it using uh, 1 Peter chapter 5. So if you pull out your Bibles... And if, um, if you didn't bring one, there's these black ones in the pews. Keep them open after we read because I'm going to keep referring back here. But when I refer back to these passages, I won't read them again. You'll just want to glance down. But we are on page um, 986 in here. It's near the back. Page 986. We're going to read 1 Peter 5, beginning at verse 1 and going all the way to verse 11. So we're going to read um, at the section that begins just after it says, Tending the flock of God. And we're going to end just before it says final greetings at the amen. So would you please stand and read these verses with me? 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1, page 986. Let's read together. Now as an elder myself and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory to be revealed, I exhort the elders among you to tend the flock of God that is in your charge, Exercising the oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you do it. Not for sordid gain, but eagerly. Do not lord it over those in your charge, but be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will win the crown of glory that never fades away. In the same way, you who are younger must accept the authority of the elders, and all of you must clothe yourselves with humility in your dealings with one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Discipline yourselves, keep alert. Like a roaring lion, your adversary, the devil, prowls around, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, steadfast in your faith. For you know that your brothers and sisters in all the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, support, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you add the gift and the grace of your Holy Spirit to the witness of Peter's words, that you will humbly 
uh, lead us in humility in your ways. It's in your name we pray it. Amen. Please be seated. So I'm going to, I am going to slow down, and I'm also going to assume that, uh, that we're, let's just agree that we're called to serve. Uh, if you want another half hour sermon, we could be here a lot longer, and I could convince you of that. But let's simply agree that as Christians, we are called to serve in the world. And let's pick it up at, after that assumption at the question of how do, what posture do we take then? What does this service look like? Who do we take after in the way that we serve? Who are we as we serve in the world? Now, I'm going to break this last chapter into three quick sections. The first asks the question, who do we have to be inside these walls, inside the community of the church, in order to support the mission that we are undertaking outside these walls? This is a leadership question, and it involves verses 1 through 5. And then I'm going to briefly ask the question, who are we then outside these walls? This is a character question. And it involves verses 6 through 8. And then finally, to wrap it up, we're going to ask, so what is at stake? And that is the question in verses 9 to 11. So first of all, who do we have to be inside these walls, inside the church, to support the mission outside these walls? Peter is writing to concerning specific leadership roles inside the church. Uh, we don't know in particular how these formal roles of elders were established. We just know that they had certain ways of influencing and, and certain possibilities of abusing that influence that involved money and power. Um, and I want us, as you listen to it, to realize that at least in, in our community here at UPC, we really do believe that every one of us is called to be a minister. So listen with two ears, if you will. Listen as if this applies to you. But also listen, in particular, for those of us, for those of you who are in particular roles of leadership here inside of the church, for how this applies to the way that that leadership is carried out. Leaders, Peter says, elders, as he calls them, first of all, he states that anyone who serves in leadership should do so willingly. This is not a dynasty. This is not a father to son to son thing. This is not the Levitical priesthood. This is a willing service and not for gain, not for sordid gain, he says. And then the third thing that he says is don't bully anybody. He finishes up by talking about humility with one another. And these are three simple and essential character qualities that when they're obeyed, support the kind of Christ-like community that lives out the mission. It gives us nothing to be ashamed of in the world. And when we fall down on them, it undercuts Jesus' mission and our participation in it in the world. I should say it undercuts our participation in Jesus' mission in the world. Jesus' mission goes on just fine. And reflect for a moment how all three of these characteristics were and are essential to Jesus' nature as the chief shepherd, as Peter calls him. Do you remember that, that Jesus took on his service willingly, that being in the very form and nature God, he did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. He willingly served. He did so without trying to seek sordid gain. He called us to do the same. Freely you have been given. Freely receive, freely give. And, and he also did so in a remarkably humble posture, a posture of humility and service. Jesus wasn't a benefactor who served. Jesus was a servant who served. Reflect on that this week. 
Jesus came as a servant. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for all. Therefore, Jesus said to his followers, do not be like the Gentiles who lord it over others, but serve in your positions of authority and of leadership. Now this, it seems, we've all seen tragically how this remains entirely relevant in our church today. I don't know if you read recently about the terrible situation, one of the largest Protestant churches in the world, in South Korea, and, and their leader has, uh, has been fined and convicted for, for major embezzlement. And it's not simply in South Korea. I mean, we can't go a week in America without hearing about a pastor who's had his hand in the till. And even if the pastor doesn't have his or her hand in the till, there's a lot of money to be made peddling spiritual things. Still, always has been. Don't do that, Peter says. Because what happens is tragically and grievously, it, it trips up a good work that is happening. And there are great and remarkable things that God is doing through God's church in the world. And there is an essential posture, Peter says as well, not to lord it over others, but to serve by example. Now, speaking personally, I have been deeply grieved by the reactions and the repercussions of the decision that World Vision recently made and then rescinded concerning the codes of conduct and employment policies. And I am neither going to endorse or reject the choices that World Vision made. That is a conversation for conversation, not for the pulpit. But speaking from the heart, I am suggesting that the intensity and the impatience with which Christian leaders reacted against World Vision seems to me an instance when others like myself, who are shepherds in the church, wielded the authority of our position as shepherds to lord it over our brothers and sisters serving in that organization in a way that is a far cry from the humble and exemplary sort of leadership that Peter calls for in these verses. And everybody walks away hurt. Because whether on a national scale or whether it happens in individual congregations, those of us who are called as shepherds and leaders in the church are called to serve in an exemplary, humble fashion after the character of Jesus Christ, not to lord it over those who follow us. So, Peter writes, begin your service to those outside the church by paying close attention to the way you lead and the way you serve inside the church. If you are in a position of authority, serve willingly, generously, humbly as examples to the flock. And the rest of you who follow, Peter says, when you have leaders who exemplify willing, generous, humble service of Jesus Christ, follow them. Accept their authority. Pray for them and work with them. Return humility for humility. Because when we fail to embody Jesus' nature as a servant within our Christian community, we drastically undercut our capacity to participate in Jesus' mission outside these walls. Now here's the good news. The church has been failing and stumbling over this for many years. And Jesus continues to work within her and within and among us to do his mission. So Peter goes on in three other characteristics in verses 6 through 8, which each of us are called to, to adopt, postures each of us is called to take to, to participate then in how Jesus continues Jesus' mission in the world. 
In the next three verses, there are three very concrete, distinctive characteristics of those who serve and witness to the suffering of Christ and the joyful hope of the resurrection. And this applies whether you're serving in something that, you have, that is earmarked as Christian service or, or whether you're in your neighborhoods, whether you're working, wherever you're interacting. From this posture and this position of a servant, as Jesus was a servant, here are three characteristics Peter says in verses six through eight, they're essential. You can look back down. Do you see them there? The first is humility. He comes back to humility. The second thing he does is talks about casting our anxieties, casting our cares on God who cares for us. And the third thing he says is stay alert. Stay awake, literally. Because the devil, your opponent, like a roaring lion is on the loose looking for someone to devour, looking for someone to overwhelm. Now, It seems to me that people who are truly humble, when I watch them, they seem to hear two things coming clearly from God. The first thing they seem to hear is, this task is just too big for you. This task is too big for you. And the second thing it seems to me that they hear at exactly the same time is, you are not too small for the task. And humble people live in that paradox. This is why I continually go back and read the writings of Mother Teresa. You see both these things in her writings. The task of caring for the, for the dying in Calcutta is just too big for her. and She knows it. And she is not too small for the task. So she continued to love the next person in front of her who is dying. This, it seems to me, is humility. And logically, when you are faced with a call to serving Jesus' mission in the world, in that kind of tension and paradox, that the task is too big, but you are not too small for the task, there's going to be some anxiety right here. That anxiety, Paul, Peter says, take it to God. God cares. God knows. God will contend with the things that make you anxious. Take it to God. Put your energy in prayer around that. We're told in other places. And then Peter says, stay awake. Entrust your anxieties entirely to God and stay awake. You're not kidding if you feel as if you could be overwhelmed at any moment. You could. This is the devil's task. He's trying. So if you feel like that, you're right. He's trying that. Be smart about it. If it feels like your efforts towards authentic practice or towards mercy or towards reconciliation or towards hospitality or towards service are being utterly and completely and consistently opposed, they are, Peter says. That's what the devil's all about and it's not a surprise. Stay awake to it. Do you remember that in verse 1 of this chapter, Peter calls himself a witness to the sufferings of Christ? And I wonder if Peter didn't see these same three qualities in Jesus, especially that last week of Jesus' life, especially that last 48 hours. Do you remember? Jesus' humility, how Jesus washed his disciples' feet, how Jesus stood before his accusers without responding, um, how Jesus carried his cross. And when you listen to Jesus' prayers in Gethsemane, you hear the anxiety of being in that position, of a a task that is too big for him. Father, if, if it's possible, take this cup from me. But knowing he is not too small for the task. Not my will, but yours be done. And minister to angels, minister to by angels, he goes and stands to face his betrayer. There's a picture also of a man who who casts all his anxieties on God, who is concerned for him. A man who faces his suffering in sober-minded, fully awake to the reality that the enemy of God intends to humiliate and overwhelm him in death. 
Now, Peter's picture of Christ-like service, of Jesus Christ, who, who we see perfectly carrying out humility and anxiety, taking his anxiety to God and, and staying alert and awake, alert and awake. Uh, Peter, do you remember that Peter learned this through failure? It's such a comfort to me. Do you remember Peter those last 48 hours? Don't wash my feet, Jesus. I don't want this. Even when Jesus warns Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, Peter, that afterwards you will remain steadfast, you will return in your faith, and you will strengthen the others who are with you. And what does Peter do? Does he humbly say to Jesus, thank you so much for praying for me? No. Do you remember what he says? It's in Luke. Hey, I will go to prison and die for you. There's no humility in this. And then do you remember what happens with Peter? Out of, uh, he doesn't stay awake. He can't stay awake. He falls asleep at Gethsemane when he's asked to pray. He does not remain awake and alert. And in his anxiety, he denies Jesus three times, just as Jesus said he would do. It's a heartbreaking story. And it gives me such great hope that all of us can learn through Peter. Because I remember Jesus' prayer. Peter, when you do return, when you are reestablished in your faith, encourage your brothers and sisters. And he writes us his letters. Let me encourage you. I failed at this. I learned the posture I need to take. Humility. Take all your anxiety to God. Stay awake. Those are the essential postures from someone who learned the hard way that the devil, like a roaring lion, is on the prowl. So if these are the three hallmarks of serving as, as Christ served, is this what's at stake? Is, is, this, is this the battle, the outcome of good and evil? Is this why we serve, to, to go right up against the devil who's trying to ruin everyone and everything? To rescue the world from Satan's relentless schemes? Is it vigilance against the devil and his schemes that motivate our service? Absolutely not. Look down at verse 9. Look down at the first word in verse 9. And as you do, I want you to remember. Do you remember Peter's brash reaction to Jesus' warning? I'll go to prison and I'll die. Do you remember Peter's first reaction in the Garden of Gethsemane? Who pulled the sword? It's Peter. (laughs) Peter pulled the sword. Peter went to fight. And then, but when you look at verse 9 here, what's the first word in verse 9? Resist him. And this is not resist as in resistance fighter, like uh, buckle up and belt up like Rambo. Um, For those of you who even know who that is. (laughs) This is resist as in stand your ground. That's literally what this means, stand your ground. James writes in his epistle uh, to stand your ground against the devil and his schemes, and he'll go away. Hold your ground. This isn't do battle. This isn't go on the offensive. This isn't take new ground. There's a battle that has already been won by one who could perfectly with humility and casting his anxieties on God who cared for him and staying alert to the devil who could perfectly see this through and you are not that person. That battle, thanks be to God, has been won in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we are called to stand our ground. Steadfast in faith. You do not have to fight the battles that Jesus has already won. The battle is too big for you But you are not too small for this battle by the grace of God. Stand your ground. Evil and death are defeated. Believe this. Remain steadfast in that belief. Alongside your brothers and your sisters throughout the world who are also steadfastly standing their ground in the face of the overwhelming odds of destruction and suffering 
and death. I want to thank our brother, Brandon Bleak, who this whole series, he works in our outreach department. This whole series, Brandon has been giving us prayer points in your margins. Did you notice that? Your margins of brothers and sisters around the world who are standing their ground. They're being persecuted for the faith. So we stand our ground with them without panicking. We stand our ground. And here is what is at stake in service that is distinctly Christian. The faith that steadfastly stands our ground when we hear the roar of all that opposes life and all that opposes the hope of salvation. Knowing that as Peter writes in verse 1 of this chapter, that you share in the glory that will be revealed. And this is the good news. The final word is glory. Stand your ground in faith that while you cannot house every person, you can build this house for this family. Down on the border of Tijuana, Mexico, where our kids are, down in South Seattle, where the Habitat for Humanity is. In this place, in the steadfast faith that one day God will shelter God's people. Stand your ground in the faith that you cannot rescue every person destroyed by addiction, but you can sponsor this person, this friend, for one more day of sobriety. Stand your ground that you cannot heal every person threatened by disease or mend every mind torn apart from mental illness, but you can work for the healing of this person in this place, and this time in the steadfast faith that one day there will be no more sickness and no more pain and no more death anywhere on God's holy mountain. Stand your ground in the faith that you cannot eradicate every injustice, Welcome every stranger. Feed all who are hungry or rescue every child trapped in poverty. But you can confront this particular injustice that you have faced and are seeing. You can welcome that stranger. You can feed or support this child living in poverty in steadfast faith that one day justice will roll down like the ocean and a table will be laid in the wilderness for every outcast and stranger and hungry and poor. And God himself, this is verse 10, God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, support, strengthen, and establish you with them. How can Peter claim this? Well, because Jesus, God with us, after Jesus had risen from the dead, made breakfast for his friend on the beach and had a conversation to restore and support and strengthen and establish his friend who had come so very close to being devoured by the devil. But that's another story. Our story this week is Holy Week. This is what our worship together on Thursday night, on Friday noon, is is about, to gather with Jesus, to learn from Jesus' humility, to bring our anxieties to Jesus, and, and, and to keep vigil and to watch and to pray with others who are standing their ground. To stand our ground in steadfast faith, steadfast faith, as we await God's grace to restore and support and strengthen and establish us. And God will restore and support and strengthen and establish. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus Christ, you amaze us. We kneel in wonder at your humility. We kneel in wonder at your grace. We kneel in wonder at the fact that you came not to lord it over us, but to serve us. We thank you for your humility, for entrusting God your Father with every anxiety, for remaining awake and alert and steadfast on our behalf. You're good. 
And we pray, Lord Jesus, that by the gift of your Holy Spirit and the power of your resurrection, you will give us the grace to stand our ground, to remain steadfast, and to wait in hope for your restoration and support, for your strength and your establishment of your kingdom. In your name we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.